Psychology in Seattle. So, Berto, I thought we would look at news, psychology news, and other kinds of things, and just kind of ramble. What do you say? Ramble on! This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. My name is Umberto Castaneda, and I develop new formulas for weed killing. So I thought we would just look at some news here. So this first one is on the Washington Post, and it's five myths about psychology. <gasps> oh. So I just thought we would kind of look at those. What are the common myths, do you think, that they might be listening, listing? Here? About psychologists or psychology in general? Psychology and psychologists. Okay. Well, one myth might be that when you talk to a psychologist, they're always analyzing you. Okay. Uh, I don't think that's on the list. But yeah, yeah that's definitely – I get that a lot. I've said on the podcast before that when I'm at some dinner parties with people I don't really know, and uh -huh. I know I'm never going to see them again, yeah. and they ask me what I do, I say I work for Microsoft because no one asks a second question. <laughs> Whereas when I say I'm a therapist or a professor of psychology, they're, they're always like, oh, are you analyzing me? Or, or, they'll, or they'll launch into like – you know, the, the, the analogy of, of when you approach a doctor and it's like, oh, you know, I'm experiencing this pain and you're just trying to, you know, right. it's like, okay. Yeah. The um, guy's like, I'm joking. I'm, and you're like, dude, I'm just trying to have a dinner with my family. Yeah. I mean, mostly what it is, is for people who aren't really in a certain cultural pocket, like they're, you know, I'm sorry to say this, but they're more rural or Rural more non-coastal elite culture, right. when they meet me and they know I'm a therapist, it really throws them off. Mm. Whereas you talk to a, a Seattleite, sure. they're like, oh, you're a therapist. Oh, just like me and just like everyone I know. <laughs> right. They'll just be like, oh, that's cool, whatever, moving on in life. Because right. they've probably met other therapists right. and they probably go to therapy right. and blah, blah, So... It, it, it's with these people who aren't really familiar with the profession or somehow they're scared of it. There's just this um, negativity. Like, uh, like uh, I remember years ago, I made the mistake admitting what I actually do. I remember I, I went to the buffet and I was right across. You know, had, you had those double buffets where <laughs> the buffet's on both sides of the table. Yeah, which is smart. Yeah. And so I – and. I somehow got linked up. I was parallel with someone that I had just told what I did. Oh, boy. And she's just like, so, and just announces there. So, you know, they say that therapists are the most crazy people on the planet. <laughs> Is that true? Is that, you know, because, you know, it's probably true, right? <laughs> and I, Shut up. That's not true. Who told you that? And I just flipped the entire buffet total. <laughs> yeah, it's just like. Okay, I don't know how to respond to that, right. given that I don't know you and I don't know all these people, because that's a very complicated question. I want to I want to represent my profession well. Right. I don't actually want to answer this question. Right. <laughs> I also think you think that people go to therapy because they're quote unquote messed up instead right. of just regular things. Right. Anyway. Um, what other myths? Might well, you just kind of alluded at one. So, well, you only psychology is only for people that are really messed up in the head, right? So, that is, um, you know, what does messed up in the head mean exactly? Yeah, my if I did a uh, just a quick inventory of the clients that I've seen over the past ten years, there's a chance that very few of them would have qualified for. 
a significant DSM diagnosis. Right. Like even just major depression, even though it's pretty common, or any major anxiety disorder. Right. Um, do they all suffer from attachment injuries? Yeah, but those aren't in the DSM. That's just universal. Attachment yeah. injuries are universal. Might they qualify for some traits of a personality disorder? Yeah, but most people do. True. Um, might they have had a phobia at some point, but that wasn't really the point of the therapy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So people who come to therapy with me are people who are wanting to talk about their relationship. They're just like, I'm not really quite sure if I should be married or not, or I just got into this marriage. I'm not sure if it's the right thing, or I feel like I don't really know who I am. Right. I just quit my job, and I don't really know what I should be doing with the rest of my life. And these might seem like simple questions, but they're not. They involve the way you were raised. They involve the way your parents treated you. They right. involve... Uh, whether or not you actually were given a chance to know who you were as a human being. Right. They involve your self-esteem, all these kinds of things. And nothing in there is like uh, stereotypically crazy. Right? The green elephants are telling me to kill the pink unicorns. Right. So in the Washington Post, the the five myths, the, the number one myth that I'm guessing you would have got to eventually is that we only use 10% of our brains. That's a psychology myth? Yeah. You've heard that before, right? I've heard that, but I didn't... I didn't think of it as a psychology myth, just like a science myth, <laughs> but sure. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's probably because I'm only using 11% of my brain. Yeah. We use all of our brain. Uh, we don't necessarily use all of our brain all the time, but we use all of our brain. And it I, would be a pretty yeah. silly evolutionary joke to play on our species to have a, a, one of the most energy hog organs in our body <laughs> to be so inefficient <laughs> that we would only... Because by, by definition, you would only need 10% of the brain mass to actually get the job done. Yeah, so I, so I have heard about this before, and I could be remembering this wrong, but I feel like the whole thing started because in practice, like if you're taking... Um, if you're like measuring brain activity for whatever psychology test or, or mental test, whatever you're doing... Uh, Yes, you're not going to be lighting up every single neuron at 100% the whole time. <laughs> and that just means nothing. You know, and, and it's kind of like saying uh, we only use, you know, 10% of our blood supply in our feet or something. Or, like, or 10% of our muscles. Yeah. We only it's, use 10%. We only use like 1% of our muscles. <laughs> it's like, well, but you're, you use all your muscles <laughs> yeah, at some exactly. point, you know. And, and like we were saying in a different episode, um, Evolution and just the way it works is really lazy and rarely just frivolously adds extra appendages and extra things. Sometimes it happens and then those die out over time, you know? Yeah, I I think that this is a a popular myth and it was very strong for a long time. It's only been recently where I think it's finally kind of gotten through to the mainstream public that this is a myth. People still use it, by the way, but – People believe in it. But I think it has something to do with the way we used to see, and maybe we still do to some extent, our brains and our psychologies, which is that there is like this vast sea of, of untapped potential. Well, because we know that in, it is real in our daily life. We feel every day like we didn't quite – oh, man, I guess I could have practiced an extra hour or – Oh, if I had only really done that one thing, oh, I didn't study enough for that test, or I wish I had learned that other language. It's just kind of like this natural feeling of like, 
oh man, I'm really not pushing myself hard enough. Therefore, I'm probably only using 10% of my brain. Right. Myth, num- myth number two that Washington Post identifies is talking about your problems always helps. Now, what do you think this one means, Berto? Talking about your problems always helps. Well, I think, so actually, I probably would have fallen victim to this one because I would, if someone said like, what did you find valuable about therapy? I would have, one of the things I would have said is, man, really talking about my problems seem to always help. And I think there is this perception that uh, therapy is about you going to this person and being like, all right, here's everything that's wrong with me and my life right now. And hopefully by talking about it, that's what's going to make it better. And I think there is some truth to that, but maybe there's a lot more subtlety here. Well, so this one, um, get ready for a soapbox to occur at this point. So, yes, there was this notion. So originally there was this, before Freud and Breuer and all those people, there was this notion that talking about your problems would do nothing. And then psychoanalysis came along and psychotherapy came along and they started saying, no, actually talking about your problems and talking with a professional actually does help. I mean, the no, the, even the phrase – so I have a lot of problems with this. Quote, unquote, talking about your problems. Well, what does that mean exactly? Are they just saying just talking about your yeah, problems? at the bar. Because like, – oh, I hate my work and my yeah, boss. Be, and- because when people come to me in therapy, they don't just talk about their problems. Like, I'm pointing out things to them. I'm confronting them on things. I'm challenging them. I'm right. asking them questions that they don't ask themselves. Right. Questions like, do you want to spend the rest of your life with this person, given the way that they are right now? Right. And, I'm, and, I'm, and they'll be like, oh, and they, they'll avoid the question. I'll be like, no, I just asked you a question. So it's not right. just talking about your problems. It's a relationship with someone who knows what the fuck they're doing in terms of how to help a human being. Well, and, and it's like when I was in therapy and I was essentially really excited about narrating my life story because I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm paying this person to be a captive audience. Now I can tell them all about Berto. And I remember she pointed out more than once uh, that actually, maybe counterintuitively, the goal of these sessions weren't for me to just like third person narrate a story like it's some Hollywood blockbuster we're watching together because that actually is not is not the point, right? And so I would have to, like, a lot of what we worked on in my case was being more in the moment and talking about what's going on with me right now and, right. and those things. And then naturally through that, we would talk about, you know, experiences from my past, memories, things that certainly would influence my, my present rather than what I wanted to do is, well, it all began back in the early 1975s. And let me ask you, did all that therapy help you? Absolutely. Right. So, well, I mean, uh, all of it as a together did, but not every single little bit of it helped, but no. all together it did, yeah. Right. You went to therapy for a number of years. Yeah. You at the end you knew yourself better, you felt yeah. better, you had better self-esteem. Yes. You were uh, less involved in your defensive activities against self-esteem. What is that supposed to mean? <laughs> yeah. Uh, you had less self-destructive behaviors. You were n- more nicer to other people. You were right. more empathetic. You were more empathetic to yourself. You were more honest. Right. There were there were a lot of things that were better about you, and so so therapy helps. Now, when let's look at this bit here because I see this notion out there, even in my own um, profession, and it drives me nuts. So there are three paragraphs, and it all it usually follows this this stupid uh, progression. 
they always have to start with Freud. So it's like, just over a century ago, Sigmund Freud popularized the notion of the quote-unquote talking cure, now known as psychotherapy. Freud said, and then it kind of goes on to talk about Freud's very antiquated ideas about Uh what things, because, you know, granted, he was operating without any research that we have today, and he was basically inventing an entire field. And so, yeah, he had some weird ideas, (laughs) and some of them were not quite as nuanced as we have them today. So, By the way, this always bugged me about um, not, not knowing enough myself, but, you know, like this general disdain for Freud. Yeah. It's like, uh, sure, and I'm disdainful of Isaac Newton. How could he have gotten relativity wrong? Right. <laughs> Even Einstein himself didn't believe in spooky right. action at a distance. Right, right, right. There, and, and, and any uh, genius will right. be wrong about... That's stupid Galileo. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Every genius today yeah. is going to be wrong about something. We're going right. to find in 500 years that they were wrong about something. Right. So uh, just pointing towards something that they're wrong about in the past doesn't say that they're all stupid. It means that they were probably, you know, it's like pointing towards our founding fathers and saying, well, they're all complete uh, uh, um, hypocrites or hypocrites yeah. and morons because they some of them had slaves. Right. But it's like when you compare the heads of states yeah. of the uh, of the colonies to Europe, which is based, you know, where they all came from, they were the most progressive. Right. And even though only five percent of the population could vote at the time, that was by far the biggest right. vote. It was the biggest democracy. So you know, just looking at things in isolation, you have to look at it in history. And looking at Freud in today's point of view is ridiculous. You have to look at Freud in during his time. He was you know, eons beyond what was going on at the time, they were still literally bleeding people during this time. (laughs) They were literally, physicians were looking at people who were depressed and they were opening up their veins and bleeding their blood to to try to cure them. And they thought that was working. So let's just give Freud a little break here. Okay. By the way, 500 years from now, they're going to be doing a lecture at some space university. And they're like, you know, people get things wrong all the time. For example, look at this clip from 500 years ago. And it's you going, 500 years from now, and there will be all these geniuses right now, and they'll have been wrong about stuff. It's like, this poor idiot didn't realize that this was the first time in history where no one was wrong about anything, what except you, for him. What are you talking about, bro? <laughs> people are doing that as we speak on YouTube right now. In fact, I guarantee you, someone is writing on YouTube right now that ble- that bleeding that you know that yeah, treatment does actually help because it lowers your well, blood pressure. Well, one and it and it was a re- you know didn't exist oh, okay, uh, sure. during Freud's time, but it did. It existed well into the 20th century. It sure. wasn't very common, sure. but anyway. Um, so, well, misattribution is. As we've said many times before, it's like we look for patterns. We're pattern-seeking machine. And accidentally, we're like, oh, that seemed to do a thing. Do that again. (laughs) So with this myth in the Washington Post, talking about your problems is always helpful. That's a myth. And then it goes into talking about Freud. Okay, whatever. And then the the second paragraph is to talk about someone who I actually respect quite a bit who um, is – I can't remember his name, but they're pointing. So talking about painful experiences, however, is not guaranteed to be helpful. Consider critical incident stress debriefing, a group counseling protocol for people who have witnessed traumatic events. A meta-analysis, all published, blah, blah, blah. I can't remember his name. It's like Julian something, but his last name. But anyway, so 
they so the second paragraph so the first paragraph is like freud was dumb and he thought that talking was great yeah. the second paragraph they find a extremely specific form of therapy that was used for probably just like a thousand people in all of history uh-huh. Uh, which is critical incident stress debriefing, where they thought that people right after a traumatic event like 9-11, sure. they would force people into group therapy. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't just talking. It was like, you have to be in group therapy. And and they and members would be like, um, can I leave? I don't want to be a part of this. This is kind of overwhelming for yeah. me. And they would say, no, you no. can't leave. Well, guess what? That <laughs> For some people, that, was, that made them worse. <laughs> yeah, of course. So it's not just therapy it was like a very specific form and research found that it was actually not always helpful that it actually had a you know pretty bad uh success to failure rate and so that that's not an indictment on the on the talking cure right that's an indictment on a very specific and form of therapy that honestly if i was asked to do i would not have done even if people were like this is evidence-based i would have been like uh i'm not going to force people into therapy that's just not my thing um, Scott Lillianfield, that's his name. Um, then they go on to the, th- the third paragraph. So we're, we're all, so anyone who doesn't know what they're t- reading will go like, ooh, Sigmund Freud is dumb. Talking cure is dumb. Ooh, they found that talking is actually bad. I mean, we, you know, there's, right. there's already this, enough of this going on in society. Oh, but by yeah. the way, a uh, really quick point about, uh, it's evidence-based. Well, because, because ends don't justify the means. So, for example, it's true that I guess if you forcefully put a lot of humans into a camp where they had to only eat the perfect things and exercise the perfect amount other than the stress of being in such incarceration they might be fairly healthy compared to another control group so what yeah (laughs) you strip their freedom right right. but even then (laughs) it still wasn't good for these people their ptsd symptoms were worse in the end, so the third paragraph, in an important 2007 paper, Psychology Treatments That Cause Harm, Emory uh, Professor Scott Lillianfield highlighted a growing body of evidence that talk therapy, although helpful for many, can sometimes backfire. So, okay, that is true, but again, we're talking about very few people in very few types of treatments. So it's funny. So let me understand. This article are, is, hey, here are five myths about psychology. Yeah. Okay. And the but, first one is great. And the first one's great. But 10, first 10% of, all, of our brain. But this is why what's weird about it is I didn't think that this was even a myth that pe- I, I've never heard people go like, you know, the thing about psychology is we only use 10% of our brain, right? Like I've never heard those connected, but oh, I have, but, but on the second one, what's weird is that they I mean, have don't you remember write, that, uh, Bradley Cooper movie. Yeah. Yeah. But that's Limit, not, that limitless. wasn't like about psychology. That was about brain. Same thing with the Scarlett Johansson movie. What organ do you think has, what organ do you think involves psychology? No, but no, no. What I mean is, well, what the right analogy would be like misconceptions about heart surgery. Right. And one of them is that, that, oh, people think that only half the heart pumps blood, but that, that has nothing to do with heart surgery. That's just like a misconception about the heart. I think that, I think I think they're using a more broader definition. Okay. And then the second one, what's interesting to me is, as you pointed out, yes, if like if if people were under the assumption, like I guess I could have been, that the the main thing is to just talk about your problems. Yes, that's way oversimplifying it, and, it, and that alone is not probably going to yield results. But what's interesting is you're pointing out that all the evidence for this being a myth 
is really like bad evidence. Right. <laughs> but if you don't know, if you're just yeah. a casual reader, even if you're a clinician, right. this would be compelling. So the final, sen- the final two sentences is what really pissed me off. About 10% of psychotherapy patients get worse during treatment and only about half get better. Uh, so we'll just take that for a second. <laughs> 10% of patients get worse during treatment and only half get better. Did it say 10 or 2? 10%. 10%. Okay, okay. So, and only about half get better. Okay. So, <laughs> so half of your patients get better. <laughs> so, right. So, when, again, to the uninitiated, they read this, they're like, whoa, 10% of people get worse during treatment? Okay. So, when you have arthritis and you have uh, pain in your knee and you get a knee replacement. Right. There's a certain percentage of people right. that get worse. Right. There's some people who even die because the anesthesia kills them. Right. Does that mean we don't do the arthritis surgery? Well, May- and I'm maybe. sure that, and I'm sure, so first of all, even though I'm going to put aside the fact that it's a five to one success ratio so far, right. and that's not even counting whether the other percentages were just neutral, but let's assume. And now the other assumption here is that they fully correlated the cause of their getting worse was the therapy. Exactly. <laughs> If you are getting depressed, like your mom just died, right. and you're pretty demoralized, and you're just like, I was really connected to my mom, I'm really depressed, I go to therapy, and now you start talking about your mom, and you know what? A month later, five months later, it's kind of worse, because now the full weight of the knowledge that your mom is really gone is starting to hit you, and your depression is worse. Well, by definition, the therapy has has failed. Uh, so this this <laughs> oh. notion of like connecting treatment. So and and the other thing is like people will come to me just just my small sliver of the sort of clients I get with issues with their marriage, for example. Right. Well, if they're an individual therapy. I'm not treating their marriage. I'm treating right. the individual. So they come to me by what? So let me just ask you, Burrow. <laughs> how would we numerically measure whether or not? So how many years were you in therapy? I was like a uh, off and on for like a decade. Okay, and so, most of that was. A, so let's was, take the first year. Yeah. And what numerical measure would have demonstrated to these kinds of scientific thinking people? that therapy was working or not working. I'm sure they did a 10 to 20 year analysis. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm being facetious. So um, they would have probably had to do a self-reporting right. of some sort. They would ask you, yeah. was it helpful? Be- but actually, this sort of stuff, the 10% of psychotherapy patients getting worse, a lot of times what they're thinking of is depression or anxiety. And what time frame? Uh, yeah, usually it's because it's hard. I mean, there's varying time frames, but that's short, what I'm saying. Shorter the better because it's easier to pay for. Usually, right. like 10, 20 weeks. That's it. I guess that's an. I don't know if they have this one on the list, but that would be another huge misconception that g- going to therapy is like going to the doctor for right. like a broken finger or something. Right. So when you go to the physician with a broken finger, and you complain that you can't move your finger, right. and you complain that it's in pain. And then you get treatment, and then six months later, you can move your finger, and it's no longer in pain. Right. And you can lift this amount of weight with that finger. Right. Well, that's a numeric. That's a. That's a. It lends itself towards numerical observation. Right. You know, quantitative observation much more than Berto going into therapy with a lifetime of attachment injuries <laughs> and a lifetime of self destruction, 
and a lifetime of denying his feelings and a lifetime of acting like everything's fine. And then a year of a therapist slowly trying to help Umberto think about who he is, slow down, acknowledge his hurts, think about his pain. A year later, he might be less happy. And, and by the way, even with all these caveats and all these things, half of them still got better. Right. <laughs> so then the last fucking sentence is the one that gets to me because this has so much power in my field. Uh-huh. So, you know, they're like 10% of psychotherapy patients get worse during treatment and only half get better. One reason, many therapists do not use evidence-based techniques and procedures shown to be effective in clinical trials. Oh, wow. So I can't tell you how fucking angry this sentence oh. makes me. Now, do you, Red have, alert. Do, you, do you have any idea what that sentence means? Yeah, I mean, I think they're saying that most therapists wing it based on, you know, some book they read or some class they remember. Yeah. And they don't look at studies and meta-analysis and they don't, like, evolve their techniques or or basically use science at all. Well, so if that were true, I'd get behind that. But that's not actually what they mean. What do they mean? When the, when the phrase evidence-based techniques mm-hmm. – is relegated to a few of what is actually shown to be effective by research. So just broadly speaking, I'll, I'll give you like five, four different main categories of therapy. You have psychodynamic therapy or, or history-based therapy and defenses and personality-based therapy. The way I talk tends to be more of a psychodynamic person. You have humanistic therapy, which is a lot of listening and a lot of self-empowerment kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. You have... Uh, what is generally called cognitive behavioral therapy, and then you, you have family therapy as well, but I'll just stick to cognitive behavioral therapy, even though there's are two different things. Um, these cognitive and behavioral therapies involve rather in its most systematic form, a very systematic form of therapy where you have logs and mm. you, you think about the exact precipitance to this or that, you know, like, I'm trying to quit smoking. Okay, well, let's look at, you know, what happens. Okay, well, when I had a craving this week, I drank coffee. Oh, so does coffee lead to you smoking? Um, it kind of seems like it does. Okay, well, then stop drinking coffee. Right. Okay, I stopped drinking coffee. Um, well, you know, I smoked a cigarette, and I felt really bad about myself, and so I smoked a couple more. Okay, you smoked a cigarette. Why did you look at that as a huge failure and a huge problem mm-hmm. with your self-esteem? And then you're going, you're more likely to use again. Um, you know, we need to change that thought. And so, you know, it's very systematic. Now that you've never been in a therapy session like Not that like before. That, no. One, because the therapists that you work with weren't like that. And two, you didn't come to therapy with a problem like that. No. You came to therapy with something that lends itself towards humanistic and psychodynamic therapy. I could have gone to therapy with something like... I'm spending too much money on clothes. But that's Help not why stop. you went. But that's not that's why not you went, went to therapy. So the situation is that when they look at so so in my industry, unfortunately, there's a lot of infighting, mm-hmm. and you have these different theoretical orientations. You have psychodynamic people. You have brief people. You have family people. You have right. humanistic people. You have Gestalt people. You have Rogers people. You have cognitive people. You have behavioral people. You have crap people. You have you know, trauma-focused people, you have, um, I don't know, there's so many different you know, schools of thought. And what ends up happening is that everyone's so 
like worried about they're not going to get enough clients is that they will or they'll lose some legitimacy or something. So when one group develops research that shows that they're very effective with a particular thing, they want to advertise that. I see. So the cognitive and behavioral people have demonstrated that their model works really well with depression and anxiety. In fact, when you manualize, meaning that you develop a manual in which you instruct the clinician to follow a certain protocol, Mm -hmm. they find that it lends itself to manualization much more. And therefore, it lends itself to research much more. And it actually is very Consistency, so you can... Right. It's hard to be consistent with psychodynamic thinking. It's hard to be consistent with humanistic thinking. I mean, think about the therapy that you went through with your therapist. How would you manualize that form of therapy? Plus, you did it over 10 years. Yeah. So you can't have a manualized therapy that's 10 years long. Right. You have to have a manualized therapy that's only like like 10 weeks long. Yep. Well, CBT lends itself to 10, 20-week trials. And so, quote-unquote, science has shown that CBT is very effective with certain kinds of things, right. like depression, like anxiety. I see. So they're saying if all therapists maybe adopted these specific techniques, maybe we'd be having a conversation. What, what are you saying? It sounds like they're saying if all therapists adopted these proven techniques, maybe we'd be having a conversation. A conversation of what? In the colloquial meaning of like, that's why this myth exists. That's why this myth exists. Yeah. So the myth is that talking about your problems helps. And they're saying, well, maybe if they were talking about their problems with therapists that followed these proven techniques, it would help. Right. So there are certain people in our industry – particularly cognitive behavioral people who will say that the only evidence-based treatment is cognitive behavioral therapy. But there is tons of scientific, empirical, lab-based, you know, observation-based research that demonstrates that psychodynamic therapy is effective with clients. Which is why I was surprised when you said that you would get behind if that's what they had meant, that they weren't basing it on right. because I'm like, I bet you there is plenty of science and research. <laughs> right. Getting back yeah. to what you said, you said like, oh, well, this is probably saying that if you're using the research to inform your therapy, yeah. then that's good. And if you're not, then yeah. that's not good. I agree with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. But, I but what, they're say, what, what they're saying is, and they're not saying this directly, yeah. and maybe I'm accusing them of something that's not really happening, but Shut I've use. seen this. But I, I've, I've never seen someone say evidence-based technique Outside and, of that context. And not refer to the cognitive behavior <laughs> therapy, even though if we're using the definition of evidence-based, then humanistic and psychodynamic should be included. Sure. Now, certain kinds of things don't lend themselves to co- – like if someone had um, a phobia of heights right. and someone said, well, I'm a Jungian therapist, I would say, well, that's probably not going to help. Yeah. I would say they need a behavioral therapist to do exposure, or they need a therapist like me who in- integrates everything and can involve behavioral techniques such as exposure right. to treating them. Now, very, very few clients show up to therapy and say, all I have to work on is depression, <laughs> or all I have to work on is a phobia. Very, very few clients. Most clients come in because they, they're, they have low self-esteem and they're upset and their life isn't going that well. Well, how do you measure whether or not therapy is working in that situation? Well, absolutely. So as an example, uh, I've mentioned before the reason I even started going to therapy. It wasn't even like, you know what? My life, I'm not even sure where it's going. I should probably – no, it wasn't that at all. I'm watching Harry Potter 2 
And in the middle of the movie, I think I'm having a heart attack. And I freak out and I rush out of the theater and I'm realizing that with the last few minutes I have left to live, I might want to go into Bartels and take my blood pressure because that's a good use of my last few minutes of time. So I do and my blood pressure is like normal. And I'm like, oh, that's a weird way to die with normal blood pressure, but a heart attack. Okay, well, I wonder why I didn't call 911 already. But anyways, and then the next day I go to the doctor or two days later, I go to the medical doctor and they do a full body analysis, whatever. And she's like, yeah, you're you're fine, but you may have had a panic attack. I'm like, oh, whoa, whoa, what? And then you might want to talk to a therapist about it. And then I'm like, okay, no, but really? So even with you... Even though you went to therapy for a discreet reason, I had a panic attack. Yeah. What you quickly realized, you and your therapist, was that that was just the tip of the iceberg. Right. That what was really going on was a denial of yourself, a lifetime of trauma that you needed to recover from, and just a lot of self-compassionate, self-care techniques that you had never even thought you deserved or that you you could have. And so how do you measure whether or not therapy worked or not? Well, you know, uh... I can tell you that your therapist did not "quote unquote" use any evidence-based treatment, uh, pro, you know, protocols, but therapy sure did work for you. Yeah. And so, so this this Washington Post uh, portion right here just drives me up the wall. You know, one, Sigmund Freud was not an idiot. Two, identifying one uh, therapy technique that no one uses anymore, and very few people use to begin yeah. with. Uh, as like an indictment on talk therapy is stupid to point to the fact that, um, you know, 10% of psychotherapy patients get worse. Now, what I will say is that some therapists don't know what the fuck they're doing. Sure. And they're, they're doing, even if they're fault, you can use the protocols of CBT and fuck someone up. Right. So there's plenty of doctors know what they're doing and all yoga trainers and all, all CrossFit trainers know what they're doing. Right. So <laughs> as in any industry, you're going to have... Now, I will say there's maybe a little bit higher level of quackery in my profession because there's not a lot of regulation on, on this sort of thing. Whereas if you're in the medical field, if you work in family medicine and, and you're doing like energy healing or something, sure. like you'll pretty quickly get you know booted out of your job. Whereas in my field, like there's... You could you could be doing anything and you're probably not going to get, you know, in trouble sure. for it. So, so I, you know, there's, there's, there's issues. Believe me, you know, anyone who listens to this podcast, I have taken emails and railed about other therapists who don't know what they're doing. And so I'm not going to say that our, our, our uh, industry is without problems, but the notion that talking about your problems always help is a, is a myth. It, one misunderstands like the statement and also like misunderstands therapy in general and also misunderstands the notion of evidence in our, in our society. So it's been, I think 45 minutes. We've only gotten to two myths out of five, bro. <laughs> and I have like 10 other articles I want to talk about. Let's take a break and try to race through this. What do All you right. say? <laughs> All right. We're back from the break. We have a number of different uh, things we want to announce. So we have our our second Psychology in Seattle scholarship, which is for $2,500, and it is due June 30th, 2019. Go to our website, fill out the form to apply. When you fill out the essay, really try to answer those questions in full. Some people are answering them very shortly, very briefly, and I just have to say, it's not very compelling when you just provide a couple sentences. 
I want to see a full kind of essay. You're trying to convince me and Berto and Stacy to give you $2,500 in relation to other people. And just understand that I have a vested interest in you not doing that great because if no one gets the prize, we're going to get the 2500 cash it out in $1 bills, maybe $2, but at least $1 bills, and I'm going to swim like, uh, like uh, Scrooge McDuck. Uh, not true. We've already had it. some people apply, so someone's getting that money, even if they don't really deserve it. But I the, wanted the Scrooge. The best. No, but if if last wave is any indication, we're going to have a really hard time choosing. Also, know that I'm Berto and I are are on Discord now. If you don't know what Discord is, it's essentially just a forum to <laughs> chat. That sounds like we're like you know not getting along right now. Berto and I, I we have some announcements. Barrett and I are on Discord. Right we're getting now. we're getting a Discord. <laughs> Kids, when when a man and a woman wait, who's the woman? Um, so Discord, it, it's mainly for gamers, but it actually can be used by anybody. It's really pretty fun. One, you can interact with all the other listeners, and two, um, I'm going to be on there every Thursday at two for an hour. Seattle, Seattle time. So two o'clock, whatever hour it is for you, two o'clock Seattle time. Uh, I'm going to be on there answering your questions. So it's kind of an opportunity to get real-time answers and real-time interaction. But really, what I hope is that eventually enough people will be on there where you'll be interacting all the time yeah. throughout the week. Just watch out for trolls. That's the only uh, caveat. Uh, such as Umberto. Uh, Umberto, <laughs> Umberto likes to troll people. Um, you're on there more than just that Thursday, right? It has been rumored that I fly in and out like a uh, crow being war worked on by someone. So another thing is, is we have a Facebook fan page that I don't go to. Is that because, a crow or a raven? Uh, a raven, three-eyed raven. Yeah, raven. but then there's the crow. No, there's yeah. they have raven. Send a raven. Okay, yeah. So right. um, so we have a fan page on Facebook. We also have a regular Facebook page where we play Tuesday Tougher Bluff, which is pretty fun. And we also post a lot of different things. We're, we have an Instagram. Uh, I, please follow us on Instagram. We try to post as much as we can. Uh, Stacy's posting more things, behind-the-scenes photos, that kind of thing. We also have a YouTube channel, and Berto has a YouTube channel, Psycho Berto. We, we also have our website. People sometimes have trouble accessing archived episodes. I employ you to go to the website. I get emails every day. Employed? Are you going to employ them? I get emails every day from people saying, I can't, I, can't access, I can't access this episode from two years ago. And I'm like, go to the website. Oh, it's so great there. <laughs> another, another email. Uh, how, do I, how do I access old episodes on Patreon? Go to the website. <laughs> it's like, uh, so I, I, I assume you're listening out there, listeners. Go to the website. Even if you don't want to see anything, see the options. All the episodes are there categorized. Even if you're a patron, the Patreon, the, you know, the patron episodes are also in, on two different pages. Well, what if they want to see old episodes? <laughs> see, there's that, there's that raven flying in for the, for the troll. Um, Okay, so let's uh, go to another myth. Myth number three, OCD manifests as hyper-organization. What do you think about that myth? Um, I guess I wouldn't have... When I was uh, uh, younger and I heard about OCD, a lot of times I heard about it in conjunction with cleanliness and like washing their hands a lot. Um I guess I would have thought, oh, they must also be really organized. But I, I, I don't 
know if I would have made that connection, but I could see how that's a that's a thing. Right. So I've I've did a I did a whole episode on this a few months ago that we need to stop saying, "Oh my god, I'm so OCD. I like yeah, it when all my pencils are in a row." It's like you're not you know, obsessive compulsive disorder is a really horrible disorder. I mean, it ruins people's lives. Uh-huh. It is awful. And yeah, it can involve cleanliness and, and orderliness, but it it gets to a level of almost delusion. This where, is like the aviator, right? Like the yeah. Twilight Zone episode, like the Yeah. Yeah, creep show, I mean. I Isn't it a creep show? I don't what's, know. what's the one where the guy is like a millionaire and he keeps thinking there are all these flies are getting into his clean room and I don't know. I mean the aviator. I think it's creep show. I don't know the creep and show. the aviator. Myth number four. Mood swings are the hallmark of bipolar disorder. Mood swings are the hallmark of bipolar disorder. Well, I think that bipolar disorder has uh, things that appear as extreme different kinds of moods or or almost even personality traits. But, um, yeah, I could see how that's a simplification, a vast simplification. Right, exactly. It's a simplification. People will look to someone that who at one moment is happy seeming and at the next moment they're angry. Oh, you're just so bipolar. Right. And it's like, nope, that's not bipolar. I am bipolar. It's just because of my OCD. Now, getting back to the OCD thing, if you want to say you're compulsive kind of about something yeah. like, I'm, I'm kind of compulsive about my house being clean or I'm kind of compulsive about my pencils being in a row. Like, you could say that. Um, or I'm kind of obsessive about... Um, my house being in order. Like I, I, I kind of obsess on that. You can talk about that, but to say OCD, you're really claiming it rises above a certain threshold that is very high. What if you're like, look, because I only use 10% of my brain, but I know that I need to talk about this out loud because it'll help me. I have to tell you that I'm very OCD about the fact that actually, what was the fifth? One? Have we gotten to the fifth one? No. Okay. Well then I will wait to make this joke. I will repeat the whole thing again. Oh God. <laughs> Um, number five, medication is the way to fix a chemical imbalance. I need medication to fix my, what was the fourth one? Uh, bipolar. Bipolar disorder. Yeah. Um, <laughs> then all your myths would fold in on each other and the world would implode. <laughs> medication is the way to fix a chemical imbalance. So this one I actually didn't read before. Medicines have a place in the armament of psychiatric treatments. True. But there are many other ways to change in the brain's neurochemical profile. Also true. Yeah. Okay. Let's move on to the next article. That seems also like that's like another myth. Uh, drugs, uh, like you know, medical drugs help you get better. Well, that's essentially what. <laughs> yeah. The myth it's like is. yes, sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's like um, if only they helped as much as society thinks they help because. They, for some people, they do, for sure, but for many, they don't. All right, Psychology Today article. Why are so many young people so unhappy? Men, why are so many young persons so unhappy? Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, I didn't know that that's – is this a trend that's been observed? So that's a good question. Um, now – Or are we talking about historically in general, it seems like younger people are more unhappy than older people? Like seems – it seems, or or have their, yeah, like, is this kind of like, they're just asking, or it's like, hey, as we've seen in plenty of surveys, younger people seem, or younger people are more unhappy than older people. Why is that? Well, one, how do we measure happiness? That's impossible. 
what they're really pointing to is uh, disorders like depression and anxiety. And they are, there are, we do have some data because we started looking at large uh, populations along these lines, you know, decades ago. So we can kind of compare like rates of major depression among 16 year olds mm. of today compared to 40 years ago. And there seems to be some increase in suicidality and also depression and anxiety. Now, here's the thing. Uh, measurement of these things, as I think I've been talking about before, is really hard to do. You have to have people you, – you, in order to really know the answer to this question, one, there would have to be some kind of biological marker that like says this person has depression and this person doesn't. Right. Because – Everyone's on some kind of gradient with when it comes to depression. So where they have to, you have to draw the line somewhere, right? The other thing is, is in different times, clinicians will think differently about the disorder. Mm -hmm. So maybe 40 years ago, they had a much higher threshold than they do today. The way that uh, uh, training programs teach clinicians to assess major depression, is it possible that they teach a different vibe today than they did 40 years ago? Absolutely. Today you have uh, anyway. Yeah. So it, the numbers could be that they're increasing, but it, it's hard to know. You know. Now most people would, would like a well. Clearly, in my experience, people are getting more depressed. You know, lately than they were in the past. Well, I'll tell you from my anecdotal experience, I've been treating pe- teenagers. I started treating teenagers for many years. Uh. People were kids were very depressed twenty five years ago. <laughs> I, I treated a, a lot of depressed kids twenty five years ago, a lot of anxious kids, and so I don't know. It's just hard to know. Now I'll kind of go with them because I think that one of the re- well, what's one of the reasons why if they were becoming more depressed and anxious, what what would what would be the reason? Oh yeah, um, so we are our technological advancement has moved so fast that there is no. There are no good models for us to cope with the change. Uh, And the younger generations are exposed to more of those advancements sooner and more frequently. So, for example, uh, the Internet, video games, uh, and computers in general uh, have have enabled people to experience things that absolutely had never been experienced in the history of, of our planet uh, and many of them are negative. So, for example, if you're online today as a teenager or young adult, you are exposed to some of the most horrific imagery and sentiments and conversations at all times, at any time of the day or night, and as much as you would want. And some of them are directed at you. Yeah. Like you're on Facebook and, right. you know, it, it, says, imagine, right. imagine just for you and me, Yeah. when we were 13... And there was a kid at school who was a, I mean, just think of like one of the kids who was generally bullying other kids or would talk shit about other people. Right. Imagine if she or he could have Facebook and just blast a statement about you. Like, did you see Umberto's shoes today? Oh my God. It was totally blah, blah, blah. Right. I mean, whereas back then they would just say it to five of their friends in isolation and that would just, but imagine being able to blast it on the internet and then imagine you in your 13 year old mind, uh, you know, back then in school, if they made fun of you, you'd be like, well, 
at least they didn't cost that much money. You know, like you would have some right. terrible response. Right. But again, only three people would hear yeah. it. Imagine you're on, you know, Instagram or whatever. And it's immortalized. And you're like, well, at least they didn't cost as much as your shoes. And you think it's a sick burn. And every yeah. now the entire internet, it becomes a meme, yeah. you know. Imagine, just imagine <laughs> how horrific right. that right. would be as a, for yeah. a 13-year-old. So, yeah, I totally agree with that. That, like, the one thing we can – so, not now, I'm less – I think that that's an issue for sure. But research shows that kids are actually still being bullied in, the, in person actually the more often than they're yeah. being bullied online. So, although cyber situations are happening – the kids are still being shitty to each other and, yeah. you know, face to face. What I think another factor is, is that we are one as a society, um, exposing ourselves to way too many, um, strangers. We talked about this in other episodes mm. where, I mean, so just imagine for yourself, like in an extreme example for the next two years, you don't get to see any of your loved ones. You don't wow. get to, you don't get to talk to them. Right. Your entire family, you know, your your spouse, your kids, your cousins, your aunts, your parents, your friends, your colleagues, like you're you're ripped away to some foreign planet and now you have to interact with like all new people for 2 years. Right. Do you think you're going to be a little stressed out? I can speak from experience. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, uh that is the world. Now, if I went 200 years ago or even just 60 years ago and went to someone and said, okay, I know right now you see basically the same set of people all day long for, you know, you have your brothers and sisters, you have your parents, you have your aunt and uncles, your, your grandparents live in the house with you. Right. Um, your town is only 500 people, uh, you know, particularly 150 years ago. Right. Uh, there's no telephone, there's no internet, there's, there's no postal service, uh, you, you know, you got to walk everywhere. You know your neighbors. Everyone knows you. And, and, and by then, the way, uh, so really quick parentheses. Statistically, sadly, you may have gotten the short straw and your little pocket was horrible. But not all pockets were horrible. No, <laughs> no. Um, and I would venture to say that being ripped away from everyone is probably worse than actually just living in a in a consistent horrible pocket. Who knows? But anyway... Um, I mean, barring being like abused and yeah. blah blah blah, but so now I go back 150 years and I go I go to someone and I'm like, okay, um, you know, 25 year old man, imagine this: you now live in a world where <clears throat> you talk to your parents once every three months. You actually never see their face, <laughs> but yeah. maybe you see them once every six months. You, your wife, you see her maybe for an hour in the evening. Yeah. And you're like frantically trying to clean up the house and get the kids in bed. Right. Um, you only see your kids maybe three hours a day, maybe eight hours on Saturday and Sunday. And even then you're running errands and you're driving around and you're, you're trying to get something set up for someone's birthday party. And you see your brother and sister maybe once a year for Christmas. Right. And the vast majority of people you see, you don't really know that well. Like, 50% of the humans you see are complete strangers. And you, the most people you spend time with are people at work, and you really don't know them very well at all. Right. Um, that person would be like, oh, my God, that sounds like hell. Yeah. Like, I, I couldn't survive. In the right. same way of the scenario I said for you, they would say, I couldn't survive in a world like that. Right. Well, and he'd be right. 
we can't survive in a world like this. Right. Um, this is why, for example, me and Berto get together and talk into this microphone. One of the things we get out of it is human contact with someone that we trust, someone that we like, right. supposedly, right? Well, I do it because talking about your problems always helps. So <laughs> the benefit of me and Umberto a uh, couple times a week, talking for a couple hours, chatting, is enriching to me and something right. that I value. And, uh, you know, uh, so... Which I think, by the way, is the reason why podcasts like ours resonate with people. Because after hours and hours and hours, you actually kind of feel like you know, know a couple of new people. Interesting. Hadn't thought of that. Makes total sense. I listen to a lot of podcasts. Yeah. Maybe that's why. Yeah. And uh, so that's definitely potentially something that could be happening that could cause more young people to be depressed and anxious. Now, I will say that I, I'm not quite convinced that young people are more anxious and depressed than they were before. It's hard to, hard to measure. The other thing is, is that we have a lot of positive changes in our society that uh, we have to acknowledge. One is there's a lot more parenting education. There's a lot more, especially when compared to like 50 years ago when we were teaching these extremely horrific practices for, for young children on attachment issues, which I won't get into, but also like propping up men and saying, hey, men, fa- you know, good fathers spend time, qual- good quality time with their kids. They don't just go to work all day, which is the, what was the dominant paradigm 40, 50 years ago. Um, we also have better health care. We have, um, you know, there's just a lot of good things that our modern society gives us that right. make it so that kids have a better time. Uh, so, you know, but I definitely do think that our anonymous society is not a good thing. So imagine how happy our kids would be if we divide, you know, devised our, um, society in a way that negates this need to constantly have to impress all these strangers all the time. I mean, honestly, one of the things that I guess I'm recommending is that teens don't use the internet <laughs> yeah or if they do it's only with like 10 people severely limit your exposure to those toxic parts of technology and like my mom when she went to she she went to school before high school the school is like kindergarten to eighth grade and the kindergarten class that she went to the I don't, kindergarten first grade class the same group of kids were in the same class. They just rotated in different teachers. Wow. So imagine, and one of her classmates was Craig T. Nelson. You know Craig T. Nelson? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> from Coach? Yeah. So my mom and Coach know each other really well. Oh, my God. And to this day, they have like class reunions, but oh, not for crazy. their high school, or they do, but no one goes to that. What they go to is this class reunion. Because imagine oh my God. for eight <laughs> years, right. the same 25 kids. Yeah, that was like me in, in school in Columbia. They did that in Columbia? Uh, basically, because I, I went with the same group of kids from first grade till I left, and I would have graduated with them. So it's no surprise that the, the, the WhatsApp group from my school, from those few, that's our, my graduating year plus or minus one, is super tight. They have this constant conversation going. Yeah. I unfortunately only participate from a periphery because I wasn't there those last two years. But Right, so it... You wonder why they don't do that. Like, yeah. what's the problem? Like, why yeah. couldn't you do that? So, anyway, uh, there's just, we don't focus enough on it, I think. I think yeah. we've gotten used to our certain, the way our society is, and we're just like, well, this is just how it is, you know? 
or kids just have to learn. It's like this, it's not natural. All right. Next article here, Psychology Today. Can't find a psychotherapist who accepts insurance. Here's why. So did you know that this is a problem? I actually started running into this problem uh, when I was still in therapy. At first, the first few years, everything was covered, it seemed like. You know, everything was great. Then all of a sudden, my insurance didn't quite cover. Like, it was all that. Now, all of a sudden, it was out of network. Then I had to, like, pay. And then after a while, I had to, like, I started having to jump through hoops and stuff like that. And it seemed like, wait, what's going on? Why, why are things getting worse? Well, I don't know if it's getting better or worse or whatever, but there are many people out there, and I communicate with some of them, who will say that they're desperately looking for a therapist. Yeah. And their insurance, they, you know, they'll, they'll find someone they like, they call them, and the person's like, oh, I don't accept insurance anymore, or I'm full, oh. or I don't take it yeah. anymore. You know. And they can't afford to pay out of pocket because it could be upwards of $100, $200 an hour. Right. And so they need to use their insurance, and their insurance isn't, isn't being accepted. So I am actually kind of rare because I actually do accept um, some insurance. I accept only one, actually. It's Primera. But um, do you know why? But a lot of my colleagues, in fact, even people right out of graduate school, like refuse to accept insurance. Do you know why they refuse to accept insurance? I don't. Because do you have any idea? Okay, okay. So basically the, the therapists themselves say, I will not accept insurance. Right. You have to pay me directly. Okay. Maybe because the insurance companies end up ca- causing them way too much trouble and like refuse payment often or so, something like that. Uh, yeah, there's certainly that. But the main reason is because insurance will cap the fee. So mm, I see. So th- now we have to define what accepting insurance oh, is. Oh, I remember. I had to do that. So I had to make this agreement where it would like we would charge uh, part of it to the insurance and I would pay the rest out of pocket. Right. So there's outer network and in, in network. Yeah. Now, this actually, although the specifics don't apply to uh, other countries like Canada or Germany or something. But this principle still applies. Like I was just on the phone with someone in Germany who was talking about how it was hard to find a therapist out there because it's socialized medicine and you can certainly pay for it privately. But if you go through the socialized medicine program, Mm -hmm. you get put on this like months of waiting list essentially. And so, sure, there's free medicine, but you have to wait a long time. Right. Anyway, and and who wants to wait? you know, months to you like have a problem right now. And what if that therapist isn't very good and you have to wait another few months to find yeah. another one, you know? So anyway, this is kind of a problem uh, in a lot of different societies. But what I'll say is that um, there are two different ways of doing insurance. One is, is that to be in network. So for example, I'm in network with Primera uh-huh. Blue Cross, which is a Washington outfit. And so when someone at their, at their place of work they have Primera Blue Cross or they pay for it themselves, uh-huh. then, and they come to me and they have Primera, I, by contract, have to use Primera if they have it. Mm. If they don't have Primera, if they have Regents Blue Shield or they have Aetna or they have Kaiser Permanente or something, then I don't have to use that insurance and I'm out of network. So I can use their insurance, but I, I don't have to, I can charge my fee, which is $150. And then this is getting into kind of the weeds. But essentially the point is, is that when I'm in network and in 
in um, insurance, I have to lower my fee to what Primera says is the maximum allowed amount for the fee, uh-huh. which is $116. So I go from $150 an hour to $116 an hour. The only reason why I allow Primera is because they allow the highest amount. Oh, wow. Like Regents is like 90 Cigna is like 50 Wow. So, so yeah, imagine that. My fee is $150. If I, and I used to accept Cigna. I would only get 50 bucks. That includes the copay. So yeah. Cigna would only pay like 30 bucks and the copay would be 20 more bucks. And so the, uh, so there's this huge incentive once you kind of get your career going to be like, I'm not taking Cigna anymore. I'm not taking Regents anymore. And you can't do a thing where you say, look, I will take it, but I'll also charge you more. You can't if you're out of network. If you're out of network. But the problem when you're out of network is that to the client, they 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 still have to pay. Like right. if someone with Cigna came to me and they did out of network, they would probably have to pay like the, the client would have to pay me like $120. But they would, they would have to pay you more if they didn't try to use the insurance. Right. So they get a bit of a discount. Yeah. But not a lot. You know what I mean? Like it's still – it's and sometimes there's deductibles without yeah. a network and blah, blah, blah. And so these you know psychology – uh, today article, you know, can't find a psychologist who accepts insurance, you know, here's why. And the why is that uh, now some people will be like $150 an hour. That's insane. Yeah. Like $50 an hour. That should be fine. Right. <laughs> well, here's the thing. Um, most therapists don't, don't see 40 clients a week right. because if they did, their brain would explode. <laughs> it's really hard to do. Right. You're not working. Everything. Wow, that would be. Oh my God, that's like worse than ER. You know, right? Most therapists, in my experience, have twenty to twenty-five, and that uh, sounds like a lot to me. That is a lot. Twenty twenty-five hours of, of listening and listening and listening yeah. and listening. <gasps> oh my God! And that and that's in addition to paperwork and right. and like other kinds of business activities. You have to do your taxes. Oh my God! Now the other thing is when you're in private practice because that's what most therapists are, is that um, you don't you have to pay for your own insurance, right. your own health insurance. Right. Do you know how much health insurance costs today? A lot of potatoes. Like, do you have any guess? <laughs> uh, a thousand bucks. Yeah, it's like a thousand a yeah. month and yeah. could be more. So when I like, was- It's uh, cheap. Like 700 bucks a month is cheap. When I was uh, self-employed, which I was for a little bit uh, when I wasn't doing my current profession that I've done for 15 years. Which is what? <laughs> what do you mean? What was your current impression? What are you talking about? Well, what what what's your current job? That's silly. I'm not going to justify it with an answer. My point is <laughs> that um, when I was uh, when I was self-employed for a little bit, I got lucky because of ASCAP, the music publishing, you know, huh. because I had published that one song, "She's on Her Own," and they had played it in that one TV show. That alone qualified me to being able to get uh, discount medical insurance through ASCAP. Wow. Now I still had to pay, but it was like. I think it was like 270 bucks a month. Wow. And granted, this was 10 year, 12, you know, 12 years ago, but still. Do you pay dues to be an ASCAP? Uh, no, you just have to have a thing that you've... Interesting. Yeah. So, so, so you, to qualify, you have to have published at least one piece of music. Right. So, so you're a therapist and you... You can only really work about 20 to 25 hours a week with clients. You're, yeah. you're working the rest of the week doing a lot of other things. Yeah. You have to pay for your own insurance. You have to pay for your own office. 
which right. in Seattle can run you like a thousand to two thousand a month for, yeah. just for a simple small office. Um, you have to pay for malpractice. Right. You have to pay for your own trainings. You don't get any paid vacation. That was the one thing that would really kill me when I was just doing private practice. Was like, and and to the, I mean, I haven't had paid vacation in I guess in twenty plus years. Probably the last time I had a job with paid vacation was twenty years ago. Yeah. So, you know, when I'm not working, I'm not getting any money, and right. everyone needs a vacation. And guess what I did because of that problem? <laughs> you had to. Uh... You had to work more. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't take vacations. Yeah, there were there was probably like a five or six seven year period where I didn't have a single week off. I might take yeah. like one day off oh, here man. and there, right? Because you're when you're not working, you're not getting money. You're not period. getting any money. Yeah. So imagine people out there. Right. You just like walk away from your job for two weeks. Right. And you don't get a single penny, and you got to pay bills that month. Yeah. Like, where does that money come from? Right. 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 Plus, you got student loans. Yeah. Uh, to get a master's degree in my field is for tuition alone is somewhere along the lines of fifty thousand dollars. To get a doctorate is somewhere on the lines of a hundred and forty thousand dollars. Yeah. I have both a ma- I have two, basically two masters and a doctorate. If I totaled the entire like today's dollars into tuition, it would be probably on the level of $190,000. Ah! That's just in tuition. <laughs> right, right. Okay? So, and you can't obviously pay that while you're going to school. No, no, no. <laughs> so you got to pay that back. And guess what? There's interest and it's not cheap. Of course. So, so you got to charge a lot. And you can't, so if Cigna is only paying 50 bucks an hour, sometimes that's actually, even though that sounds like a lot, Again, you, you have that, you know, because you only work, you only see 20 clients a week. So it's $25 an hour. Right. Then you got to figure, I have to pay for my own. And also, you don't have retirement. You don't nope. have Social Security. You have to pay into Social Security. Anyway, you have to pay your own taxes. You know, it gets, it gets reduced fast, is my point. So the solution to this is what? If we want clients to actually be able to, to afford therapy, what do we have to do? Um, well, I mean, it sounds like because you were you were expressing this problem about the Germany or wherever where socialized medicine was uh, causing these long waits, right? I mean, according to one anecdote, yeah, okay. But it seems like the that's one extreme. The other extreme is you subsidize uh, you subsidize the the field, like you subsidize oil exploration and shit like that, right? So. Well, so in the Germany method, you you could stick to that method, but what you would need to do is you would need to increase the taxes and increase the payment. Yeah. Because in Germany, from what I understand, and it's the same in the States. So if you want, as a clinician, to to make a good living, mm-hmm. you have to step outside the state-sanctioned area. Right. And that presents this huge, or even the insurance area. Yeah. And what that does is it essentially just makes therapy an elite thing that only elite people right. can afford. Well, the way you solve that is by raising taxes and dedicating the yeah. money to actually paying. Because like right now in Seattle, we have public health agencies and community mental health agencies where there are therapists that are uh, working real hard. And these people are working 40 hours a week, sometimes seeing 25 to 30 clients a week. But they're being paid like $22 an hour. Yeah. 
and they're getting vacation and insurance and whatnot, but still $22 an hour, and they can't wait to get out of that job so they can actually start making money so they can actually pay off their student loans. <laughs> well, a solution to that is you triple that pay to yeah. $66 an hour. Well, right. now they're going to stay potentially the rest of their career. Yeah, you just have to raise the money to do that via taxes, like you're right. saying. So that's the solution. Yeah. And that's what I meant by subsidizing. Although the other part of this is there's clearly still a stigma and a misconception because insurance companies don't feel they have to pay more. Right. So right. So, right. So there's a there is culture around around expectations around yeah. that. And so like when the insurance companies didn't pay for birth control pills, that was right. because they were trying to save money and they yeah. were also sexist. Right. And they were just trying to save money so that they could actually charge less money to the customers because that's actually kind of a big deal to them. And when there was enough backlash of just like, I can't believe that you're not you're paying for uh, Viagra with insurance right. money, but you're not paying for birth control pills. And there's enough cultural movement. And we could do the same to insurance companies today. If we as a society said, you have to start paying more money for therapy right. because we're uh, not going to take it yeah. anymore. But, you know, there's not a lot of political effort in that area. I struggle with the same sort of problems in my job, in my line of work. Yeah. Which is what? <laughs> Man, come on, quit it. It's not even funny anymore. <laughs> It sounds like you're flirting with me on some level. Hey. <laughs> Don't even do that. <laughs> no me gusta. No me gusta. I, you know, I wanted to do this segment where it's like I check in with the listener. Because earlier we were talking about how we, we're like their friends now. It's like, hola, ¿cómo estás? ¿Estás bien? Tú eres muy importante para mí. You know, that kind of thing. Like, you know, just a little personal conversation. Like, how are you doing? Are you feeling comfortable? Sit back. I don't know what's happening right now. <laughs> what is happening? <sighs> I mean, I realize we're at the end of this episode and you're getting a little punchy, but that really takes the cake. So, um, so I just want to I just want to talk again about Discord because I'm having a lot of fun with it. Yeah, and I again I think only about. I don't know, a couple dozen of people are, are really kind of active. Yeah, I don't know if a lot of people know about Discord. You right. Know? Yeah. And I think a lot of people hear us talk about it on the podcast, and they're just like, yeah, I'll let it go. I, I really do think that if, if, an, if all of us kind of commit to it or half of the listeners commit to it, it could be really fun. It could be a really cool community, too. Right. I think it – I mean, one, you can communicate – directly with us right uh people will email me and blah 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 and you could also like interact with each other people are posting pictures of their pets their favorite music their favorite movies and it you know it'll be an organic process we'll kind of see where this goes but it just seems like because to me one of the biggest reasons why i do this podcast is contact with the listeners right and we talk to the microphones we post the episodes you know some people comment but it's not real time where like the live shows we've gone to the biggest enjoyment of that was actually just face to face with listeners. Yeah. The post show. So good. And I think that discord really allows a very uh, clean, um, seamless, easy, fun way right. to regularly 
in real time communicate with everybody. Totes, there's, totes. There's even a way to do voices, right? You can do like voice channels and, yeah. and just talk, which I'm not fully on board with at this point, but maybe we could be at some point. <laughs> Dude, I might even finally reveal my real, real, real favorite color on there. So another thing is that I want to announce is we're going to do our um, – so this is our first announcement when we're talking about our 11th anniversary. <gasps> oh, my gosh. So if you're still listening at this point, I'm going to guess that you're a fan of the podcast. Well, I mean, I can't... <laughs> if you're still listen- listening to whatever Birdo did about five minutes ago. They're still entranced by that. You wait. They're going to be like, hypnotism works. <laughs> so we have a- an 11th anniversary coming up which is crazy because it was just the 10th anniversary last year yeah it's weird how that works (laughs) and we're going to celebrate it on august 10th 2019 and here's what we're going to do wait is that a saturday yeah can't i got a matinee of lemis yeah so uh now i i don't know if you responded to my text but are you positive i'm positive that day's locked that day is locked so on august 10th 2019, which is my dad's birthday. Woohoo! Um, we are going to do a podcast for 11 hours, and we're, we're going to live stream it. 11 hours. That's shorter than our usual episodes, but still. Yeah. <laughs> Not as long as some of my deep dives, by the way. <laughs> 17 hours for attachment uh, theory. But anyway. But it's live. It's yeah. live stream. So you'll finally hear the mistakes we make when it, uh, Kirk doesn't ed- edit the podcast, which is crazy. Yeah. So... There, uh, so the past year we did for our ten year we did a live show. People flew in from all over the world, and we did a live show, and it was super fun. But I just have to say uh, to everyone, I have I take on ninety nine point nine percent of the burden to pull that off, and it's so stressful to like plan an event like that all by myself. But even if Berto took half of the blame, so to speak. It's so much work. It's so much stress. And in the end, although great, we only really get to interact with about, you know, a couple dozen people. Yeah. If we do a live stream, we could potentially interact with 10, you know, 20 people, a hundred times that, you know? (laughs) And so, and the other thing is, it's just so much easier for me to plan, you know? And also people out on the survey that I sent out, about live shows are just like, oh, well, you know, I don't live in the Seattle area, so it's it's not really... It's a big trek. Yeah. But for those who want to fly in, what we're going to do... Or drive in. (laughs) Or drive in. What we're going to do is we're going to do an after party to the 11-hour show. Oh, my God. An 11th-hour show after party. Do you know how not tired we will be? (laughs) So, and what I'm thinking is we'll make this a tradition. Every August, we'll do a live stream... And for our 12-year anniversary, we'll do 12 years and, yeah. or 12 hours. So on August 10th, 2019, we're going to do a live, live stream, I think, on YouTube. Yeah. We're going to figure out how to do that. It'll be video. and we'll, I'm going to be wearing my gorilla suit. We're not going to publish the video. We're probably just going to erase it right afterwards. You have to, you have to be a part of it live. We will post the episode's audio mm-hmm. later on, but... Um, you can't, you know, so we're going to do like maybe four or five episodes in a row. We're just going to record and, um, and we'll try to make special things. We'll try to, 
go to the live stream chat, maybe use Discord actually, right? And uh, you know, respond to what people are saying. And again, Ooh, we could do a live tougher bluff. Exactly, we could do a poll. Yeah. So uh, now the after party, uh, we're we're not sure exactly where it's going to be, but it's going to be in Seattle. And it'll be in the evening on Saturday 10th. So I'm thinking if Berto and I started podcasting, I'm not really, neither of us are really morning people. So say, Berto, you and I start at like 10 o'clock. Right. And we go until 11. Well, that doesn't make any sense. So <laughs> no, we did, till nine. <laughs> oh, till nine. Right. So 11 hours, that's nine o'clock. Uh, so maybe we start at nine Let's o'clock. Start at 9 a.m. <laughs> so we start at 9 a.m. And we go until eight o'clock, right? And then you and I drive down to uh, some bar, and we'll meet up with everyone. We can have a drink, right. and we can chat, and we can meet people. So this way, we get kind of the both the best of both worlds. One, we get I get the less stress because I definitely know how to plan for episodes, right. and that's not hard. That's that's work, but I know how to do it well. And we get to meet everyone in the after party. Yeah, it's the best of both. Now, I have some logistical questions. Like, during these 11 hours, like, in a biodome and stuff, like, how do we take showers? How do we do things like have sex, all these things? The camera's always rolling? Uh, Yeah. So so it's a good question. It's funny how everyone goes there. Like, like my wife was like, "Um, how do you, how are you going to, like, go to the bathroom? Well, um, we'll, we'll figure that out. One... We, there will be time in between the episodes. Oh, like little little bottles we can fill up? <laughs> yeah. Speaking of, uh, uh, what's his face, Howard Hughes. <laughs> but um, so, so the format I'm thinking is we'll do like an episode for an hour and a half. Right. Th- there'll be a break where... Like a two-hour break. Well, <laughs> however long it has to be. Where we go to the bathroom, if we have to eat, you know, right. we can do that too. But we won't leave the studio. Oh, I want to do the thing where I'm eating super spicy food live on air. Oh, maybe we could do that. Maybe we could do yeah. the Hot Ones Challenge at that yeah. at that time. And they'll get they'll we'll get sued, which is awesome. Yeah. Well, we'll call it something else. Well, yeah, we won't call it Hot Ones Challenge. We'll call it like spicy spicy wings challenge or something. Yeah. Like. Or spicy soup challenge. I don't know. Whatever. But yeah, that'd be a good thing for the thing. Um. So yeah. Uh. Hopefully, people can tune in and be there with us in the live stream and also uh, communicate with us over the chat thing and we can go back and forth. I'm really looking forward to it. I think it's going to be fun. And I'm really looking forward to the after party and meeting up with people. Yeah, that'll be awesome. Some people, some people have been asking, including famous patron Lennon from Ireland. He's thinking about coming to Seattle. Woo! So if you're li- listening, famous patron Lennon, fly in and make sure that you hang out with us Saturday night. FPL, we know thee well. Ooh. Yay. That's an interesting phrase there. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and if you have any suggestions for episodes or different segments we could do, email us at contact at psychologyseattle.com. Like, I could talk to you guys the whole time from beginning to end like this. <laughs> what would you do? Uh, I would just, you know, creep everyone out. <laughs> uh, what is well, that? Well, What's Berto, that thing called? ASMR? ASMR? Mission accomplished. ASMR. Mission accomplished. (laughs) Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining us out there. Please take care of yourself because you deserve.